I have finished the cheese string, we can begin recording. about the UK, Christianity and the left. I'm Ben Molyneux-Hetherington and I am bad at making podcasts. I am joined, as always, by Adam Spears, who is also bad at making podcasts. Adam, why are we so bad at making podcasts and releasing them to people? Um, I think it might have something to do with our white male mediocrity. That is exactly it. Um, so we're actually very woke and we've made that point right at the start. So... Um, <laughs> I don't know, I feel bad about making a joke about being woke because I think it's actually a, a good thing that has been made into a joke by some of the worst people in the world. But we are going to be, hopefully, we've made this promise before, but maybe we'll keep it this time, going back to releasing more regular stuff. So yeah, we're going to start off with a, a relatively low-key episode. We've got a few different things to chat about. Uh, the first thing is quite exciting because we had someone send us an email. I'm not going to name the person because I didn't ask if we could, I don't think, but you know who you are. It was really lovely to hear from you. And if anyone does ever want to get hold of us, uh, it's breadandrosaries at gmail.com. So they were thinking about both the stuff we talked about in the Hillsong episode and some of the stuff we talked about in the policing and protest episode. And they said the following, I was wondering about the individuality of some evangelical preaching about the cross and in Hillsong songs come to that, but also about how it's taught as a transaction. God does A, so I do B, and then C happens. Total non-expert that I am, it feels very capitalistic to me. If you have any thoughts on that, I would love to hear them. Total non-expert as she is, total non-expert as we both are, do we have any thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's not surprising that with Hillsong, it would be a very Protestant kind of thing. That's very sort of penal substitution, very transactional. Give us a quick summary of what you mean by penal substitution. So God is kind of like a judge, and he needs to have his wrath satisfied, and therefore there needs to be someone who pays the penalty for sin to God. It is, of course, um, bollocks. Yeah, I think, and obviously the person who pays that sin is Jesus dying on the cross, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's one of the, there are many theories about why Jesus died, what it achieved, um, what the hell is going on on the cross, and yeah, it's one of those theories that is, it's probably become the most kind of prominent theory, particularly in conservative thought, but historically it was certainly not the main theory, and there are lots of other ideas about what really went on on the cross. And the thing is, a lot of this stuff is, we're giving words to ideas that are very old because like penal substitution is an old idea like it it is present in the bible you can see it but it's not spelled out quite in that way and i think arguably christus victor is older which is the idea where jesus comes and his death on the cross defeats evil basically it's almost like rather than paying off God's wrath, you're actually doing it in the other direction. Jesus is doing it in the other direction. Yeah, and I think for me, the problem with a lot of it is it doesn't really understand metaphors. Yeah. You know, the whole point of metaphors is that they capture something but not everything. You know, how many different metaphors does Jesus used to describe the kingdom of God? I don't know. Someone's probably tallied the math up, but it's a lot for sure. And that's why you get, as you say, you can find penal substitution and Christus Victor and... Solidarity. That's my favourite. Yeah, yeah. But I'm talking about 
in the actual Bible, even oh, right. you know, well, even if you're, yeah, I mean, solidarity is absolutely in the Bible. But even if you're just reading Paul, you can find five or six different metaphors for how atonement works, what happened on the cross. Yeah. And the point of that is not that they all accurately explain what's happening, but they're all metaphors that are helpful in grasping the big and complex idea of what what is actually going on through Jesus. Yeah, and I think to add to that a little bit, that idea that they're metaphors is really important because what we've done is we've taken those metaphors and we've turned them into something that is an all or nothing thing. You must believe this or you're wrong and you're going to hell or whatever it may be. And that's just a really unhelpful way of looking at it. And what you actually end up with, I think, a lot of the time is a lot of people trying to say, well... Um, tread this middle path where they say where they say well you know it's not that we have to believe one over the others we can believe all of them and i want to say actually some of them are kind of gross you know we don't have to believe all of them yeah (laughs) some of them have more merit than others yeah so to go back to the question we've got sidetracked from there's this idea of penal substitutionary atonement that is quite strong within that preaching so talk more about that adam yeah i mean the thing is so hillsong were a pentecostal church they left assemblies of god which is which was a pentecostal denomination and sort of formed their own denomination and i think they kind of see themselves now as not pentecostal but they're charismatic i guess is is what you would say and a lot of that stuff that kind of penal substitutionary atonement is still very very present in that world it carries a lot of weight throughout a lot of protestant christianity i mean even the church of england still technically that is one of the main things that it believes and this comes from the reformers so you might hear people talk about calvinism sometimes which comes from john calvin a lot of people do sort of still identify as calvinists a lot of bad people a lot of bad people identify as maybe a few good people but mostly bad people (laughs) yeah i was a calvinist for a while for about two weeks at university um <laughs> oh god i remember that i think i no, think that no. was yeah um, was that, oh, that i don't think you that do. prior to me knowing you yeah i think i think that was in my first year very briefly right okay and then i was like oh this isn't satisfying because god because i think i i'd sort of okay so like technically i wasn't really a calvinist his logic kind of made sense to me i mean this is the thing this is why people often say this is why lawyers shouldn't be theologians right because calvin trained as as a lawyer right and so you could see that throughout his thinking i mean i would totally agree that calvinism is a really you know people might have heard of tulip which is yeah, yeah. i remember being taught taught uh, a level re which is you know uh acronym for the uh, i probably can't remember what all of them mean but go on have a go have a go <laughs> so t is total depravity everyone yeah. is awful uh u is unconditional election nice. god picks who's who's gonna save and it's his choice don't have to do anything about it l is limited atonement oh, which means that yeah that uh not everyone is being saved i is irresistible grace meaning you can't say no and p is the perseverance of saints meaning that you can't fall away is mate, that, am I, mate yeah yeah look at that oh my that was goodness. like a decade ago a, i learned you're that. <laughs> king king of the reformed bros <laughs> Um, but anyway, you know, it's actually a really workable system. Like, it is, there is no logical inconsistency in it. It works. Yeah. It, it It's really strong. It just makes God an arsehole. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, God yeah. is inarguably evil within that system. Yeah. Uh, and they work around that by being like, well, only God gets to decide what's evil. Uh, but no, <laughs> yeah. no, actually, God is evil in Calvinism. Uh, yeah, there's no logical inconsistencies. It's just morally despicable. Yeah. Well, this is where I'm like, well, I'm not sure whether I was a Calvinist. I mean, you get people who who will say that they're Calvinists, but they don't agree with all the things in Tulip. And to me, that 
that's fine. I mean, I'm not a Calvinist, so I don't get to say, but like, that's, that's fine because it's not like Calvin himself invented tulip. That's just been superimposed on his work later, like in the 20th century. But yeah, when, when I was briefly in my first year of my undergrad, I was like, oh, do you know what? Arminianism doesn't really work, but Calvinism kind of makes sense. And I don't know what to do with this. This is really bad. So I was like, okay, well, I'm a Calvinist. But I don't agree with L. I don't agree with limited atonement. Okay, maybe maybe Jesus died for the chosen only, but <laughs> but everyone gets chosen. Yeah. yeah, I've heard like universalist Calvinism before as well. well it's kind of it's very Bartian. Yeah, yeah, and he sucks as well. But let's not even get into that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember someone at university saying to me, "Yeah, I'm a Calvinist." I was like, "Oh, really? Why?" And he was like, "Well, I don't like Armenianism. Um, Armenianism. I was I always get confused between Armin. the country and the." Arminianism. Uh, I don't like that, so I guess I'm a Calvinist because those are the only two options. And he was baffled by my suggestion that he could come up with a better option if he didn't like the ones available. I think the thing you get a lot of Calvinists who are like, well, it's one of these two, so better yeah. plump for the evil one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> have, you, have you seen the meme where it's like the different teachings of Calvin, Arminius, and Darth Vader? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, no. All right, so number one, for John Calvin, you've got total depravity of humankind. We're all baddies. And then Arminius, humankind has free will. And then Darth Vader, Luke says there is good in me, but I don't know. Sometimes I think about doing the Emperor in, but then maybe that's bad as well. <laughs> so actually, probably a more morally complex and realistic theory there from Vader. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. Should we do one more? Yeah, go on. So Calvin, unconditional election. Arminius, conditional election. And Darth Vader... It's your destiny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe less subtlety in that one, but we can work with it. <laughs> yeah, so so some of these ideas, you know, the, the, it, yeah, it's, it's essentially Calvinism or penal substitution or theory, but they are quite deeply capitalistic ideas when yeah. you when you get down to it. Or at least there's a history behind those ideas that is pre-capitalistic, but the way they're understood and presented now is pretty deeply capitalistic. Jesus weeps for Gaza. He sees the pain and suffering of the 1.9 million people who have been forced to leave their homes without access to nutritious food, clean water, decent shelter. He hears the cries of the 25,000 orphaned children. He is with all who mourn the 250 people killed every single day. Christians for Palestine UK is a group of Christians who are calling for an immediate ceasefire in Palestine. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but are united in our prayers, hope and action for equality, peace and justice for all the peoples of the Holy Land. Together, we are organising a Christian presence at the National Marches for Palestine and Local Days of Action, where we've been joined by siblings from Sabil Kairos, Pax Christi and a whole range of Christian churches. We urge you to join us to act in solidarity with the people of Palestine and call for a permanent ceasefire and just peace. The Very Reverend Canon Richard Sewell Dean of St George's College in Jerusalem says, I warmly welcome the newly formed group, Christians for Palestine UK. Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank 
need to see the solidarity of Christians in the UK and they will be encouraged to see your commitment to stand up for them in their time of terrible suffering. To find details of local actions or to join the Christian bloc at a national march, follow Christians for Palestine UK on Instagram and Facebook or email christiansforpalestineuk at gmail.com. Join us as we call for a ceasefire now. Yeah, and I, I think as well we should probably say that in terms of what Calvin taught, it's fairly logically consistent if you can do away with the idea that God is love, you know, <laughs> which yeah, yeah. Seems, seems a fairly central theme, I don't know. But um, the thing with Calvin is that apparently in his own lifetime, obviously you've got like these two kind of superstars of the Reformation, Luther, who's a bit older than Calvin, and Calvin. And uh, Luther was loved. You know, people loved Luther or or hated him, right? But he was like a rock star, you know. Um, Calvin was driven out of his hometown, unlike Luther, and had to seek refuge in Switzerland, where he was also kicked out for a while and then came back. But like Luther, Luther wanted the adulation. You know, he he enjoyed that a little bit, I think. Whereas Calvin kind of didn't, and and I think that's I'm not a big fan of Calvin, but I feel like that's a point in his favour. Another point in his favour is that uh, so the first bit isn't a point in his favour, which is that he believed he saw uh, literal manifestations of the devil. But the point in his favour is that his response to that was trying to fart at the devil, which I really appreciate. Like, yeah, they're obsessed with it, Luther as well. Like they're obsessed with, and I think like back then they just had like a bit chiller with bodily functions found them just objectively funny we need to put more fart noises in this podcast basically is what we're saying oh i do you know what i don't even (laughs) okay this is this is how autistic i am right like and i think you know this i i have a list of words like an actual list of words i hate and and yeah that word and all derivatives of it are on that list what podcast yeah that (laughs) that's number one so yeah, so we're going going back to talking about how these ideas are very capitalistic. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, the other thing I wanted to say very quickly is um, we talk about Calvinism, but actually we probably talk more accurately about the Reformed tradition because, like, yeah. it's not just Calvin. And Calvin was a bit younger than all the other first generation of reformers, and he was kind of between generations, really. So, like, yeah, I think John Calvin kind of became the really big name because he wrote so well. But actually, you've got so many other names before him who are saying very similar things, like Bootser, Zwingli, all these other guys. So I think it's a bit of an anachronism to just call it Calvinism. But that's a really boring point that didn't really need to be made. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so talk to us about how these ideas of the penal substitution are pretty deeply capitalistic. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think um, I, I wouldn't want to go whole hog on that because one of the things, obviously, with Calvinism is this idea of... Um, unconditional election and that sort of takes the choice away really which i guess is sort of capitalistic in itself you know one of the things that capitalists will always say is oh but it gives you more choice and you know realistically it doesn't but i'd say potentially that's that's where you get that different that divide between calvinism and a more general penal substitution is that actually yeah within you know very hardcore calvinism yeah there there isn't a choice there although you know they sometimes square that circle by saying god may have already decided but we don't know so we still need to try and get people to make a choice 
but also more generally when you're looking at that wider evangelical conservative Christian world there's very much this sense of choice you know there may be some Calvinistic underpinnings to it but you know a lot of that idea of evangelism and trying to convert people that really does hinge on you making a personal choice so I think that's possibly the divide there isn't it well yeah yeah exactly and it really turns it into a pretty transactional relationship God does this, you do this, you know, you have to do the right things to receive God's grace. And um, yeah, and I, and I think that's a, a fairly deeply transactional and, and capitalistic thing. It also, whenever I talk about this stuff, I'm also like really reminded of um, Jonathan Edwards, who people still yeah. think is the greatest American theologian of all time. And I'm not convinced by that personally, but he did this really famous, I think it was a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's, yeah, it was. It's, it's yeah. got some of the most wonderful, gross ideas in it. I almost want to like find it. Um, where where is it? I've got it over here somewhere. It's on my um, toxic bookshelf. <laughs> we we have a we have a similar shelf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff that I would never like give to anyone. For me, it's books that I want to throw away. But burning books is quite bad. Yeah. Do you want Do you want a taste of some of the books on my toxic bookshelf? Yeah, go on. Okay, so here's the first one. Oh, so this is a podcast, so you can't see, but he has just shown me Systematic Theology by Wayne Gruden. There's a lot of discourse on like Twitter and stuff about red flags. If you're dating someone and they do something or see something, why you should run away. And like generally speaking, I think that's a bit stupid. But uh, if you do see someone with a copy of Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem and you ask them about it and they say anything other than, yeah, I've got it. So either I can study its awfulness or so other people don't get a copy of it, then run, run a mile because that person is a psychopath. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Here's, here's, here's the next one. This is a bit more nuanced, this one. Okay, so you might know it, you might not. Is God a moral monster? Uh, I have never heard of this. Tell me about that. So Paul Copan, who wrote this, is mates with William Lane Craig. Oh, yeah, I vaguely know of him. So William Lane Craig is like, he's a philosopher first and foremost, and he does all that apologetics stuff, which like, fine. I'm not really into apologetics because I think it's just a bit pointless sometimes but maybe we do need to do a bit of it i don't know but like william lane craig to his credit you know he's he's pretty good at that but i would never listen to him for anything else ever but paul copan is his mate and he's written this book which is about the old testament and asking how can god command people to kill canaanites for just existing and um his thing is basically no god is not a moral monster because he's god and um kill the canaanites yeah, it does seem like conservative Christians either approach the Old Testament with, hey, let's make God an absolutely awful entity and also maybe do some ethic cleansing as good stuff or just pretty direct anti-Semitism. There doesn't seem to be like a, another route available to them. No, yeah. Here's, here's the next one. Walking with gay friends. I hope that title is extremely literal. <laughs> <laughs> but I suspect it's about how to be a homophobic asshole without your friends saying, hey, dude, stop being a homophobic asshole. Is that about right? Well, it's actually a really sad book because the person who wrote it is gay and they're using a pseudonym for their name, which shows you how toxic oh. the Christian, like conservative Christian world is. But they are one of these people who's basically like oh i need to live um my life as a single gay person but also i'm really miserable and i don't know what to do it's it's actually a very sad book yeah that's yeah kind of depressing okay last one oh fuck i just said the words Anne rand 
<laughs> we all know about Ayn Rand, right? Just uber for free market libertarian, really. Yeah, nasty, nasty stuff. But not the good, not the good libertarian socialists. Not a libertarian socialist, sadly, no. But yeah, that's the shelf. Those are the company that Jonathan Edwards keeps on my on my bookshelf. But Jonathan Edwards, he wrote this sermon, which is called "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God," and it's absolutely incredible. Because he's, it's just a rant about how everyone deserves, you know, God is a really good God who uh, would delight at killing you. It is the, it's like, it's like the foundational text of like anything fire and brimstone preaching, right? This is the, the uh, example of fire and brimstone. Yeah, 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 uh, exactly. One of my favorite bits is where he talks about how we are like a spider on a tiny bit of silk dangling over the pits of hell and God could just snip that silk line and (laughs) cast us into the fiery pits. But although it's, I mean, it's funny, right? It's it's funny and it's it's funny and it's mad and whatever, but it's also like I mean, just because people use gentler language now nowadays, fundamentally the key concepts of you know, particularly like street preaching or like big evangelical events and stuff, you know, if you've ever been in a youth group where someone has tried to do the come to Jesus talk, the fundamental concepts: you don't know when you're going to die, you don't know where you're going to go, get right with God or face eternal punishment. They might be slightly nicer about it. They, they might the tactics might be different, but the core concept are exactly the same yeah but i also want to like add in a word of caution as well because i think obviously it's gross and we don't want to push that stuff but back in those days they still had slavery and a lot of this way of thinking became quite popular amongst certain like enslaved people and you can see why it would because they are being subjugated by wicked men and those wicked men are going to get their comeuppance from a god who's angry at, at the at people enslaving um, other people um and and i get that i obviously don't agree with this theology but i get why you know that there's a level of appeal there for people who are facing such awful awful situations yeah and obviously you know if you look at the history of judaism the idea of kind of a, a conscious existence after death is a quite a late development in the history of judaism it's mostly absent in what you might call the hebrew bible or the old testament and when it does emerge particularly in what we'd call the apocrypha it's mostly as a response to god is just he wants to see justice in the world but in this life, people aren't getting justice. You know, we're being persecuted as Jewish people. And so this idea that there is some sort of conscious existence after death where justice is ultimately meted out comes out of this desire to see God bring his justice about, which I think is actually a positive thing. I, I would want to, you know, back that and say, yeah, like there is existence after death because God is going to eventually make things right and do justice. But then to turn that into let's scare the shit out of people so they join our club is a pretty grim use of that ultimately, when in fact what we should be doing is talking about how capitalists are going to go to hell. <laughs> There's um, you know, it's it, the other thing is it's quite questionable even whether you can read it in that way anyway. There's a lot of metaphor there, and I think that's why, you know, when people talk about Jesus saying that people are going to go to hell, that in itself is quite anachronistic. You know, it's, it's reading a, a modern assumption into, into the words of Jesus, because... Jesus probably didn't believe in hell, and a lot of scholars argue that he probably didn't even actually believe in what we've come to think of as eternal life, because, of course, we have a very poor understanding of what that means now. Eternal life didn't mean life for eternity in heaven. It meant life to its fullest in the here and now, which is why the kingdom of God it is about what is happening here on earth 
um, not necessarily about what's happening in heaven. And, and this, uh, when I when I make this argument to people, they will often say something like, "Well, you know, but uh, but he says his kingdom is not of this world." And actually, that's that in itself is a very poor translation. A better translation is, uh, "My kingdom is not from this world," and that completely changes the meaning. Yeah, yeah. Having said that, my counterpoint to you is Margaret Thatcher is definitely burning in hell as we speak. So well, she's she's privatizing hell. Yeah, she is experiencing eternal conscious torment. She's one of the few people that is, but she definitely is. Uh, do you know? I'm not sure I agree with you. Only reason being, I think if Margaret Thatcher's in hell, she is actually causing eternal conscious torment for Satan. <laughs> That's just uh, their punishment is they get each other. Okay, fair enough. So yeah, thank you for that that message. I think we've we've gone all over the place with that but uh, i guess what we're saying is yes you're right uh, there is a real market and capitalistic logic to the idea of we are selling you a product that is salvation and all you have to do is buy into it and we will give you transactionally what you want um, and actually you know fundamentally that for me is in opposition to the concept of grace there's no capitalistic concept of grace really grace is inherently unearned right so yeah we agree uh we t- Spent a long time talking about all sorts of only vaguely related things to say yes. So next up, we're going to talk about our good friend Rowan. Uh, Rowan Williams, for those who don't know, is the former Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, he has retired. He finished in 2012. He is someone who I think is worthy of our time and respect, but is certainly not without blind spots and points to be criticised. And he semi-regularly writes for The New Statesman, which is a British magazine that kind of comes from the liberal political standpoint. They occasionally like to invite some slightly more radical thinkers in their pages. Um, You're certainly not going to read hardcore Marxism in there, but it is not purely liberal thinkers, but it it tends to mostly centre around kind of liberal thought. Uh, And Rowan Williams has, has written for it regularly and he wrote an article for them it was actually last November but I think it's worth talking about and it was entitled The Suppression of People Smuggling is as Perilous and Futile as the War on Drugs which I mean as a starting point I think we can both agree with so I'm just going to read the first little bit to get an idea of what we're talking about Um, so he says people die hideously criminals make profits from their deaths innocents are caught up in the business to be killed or corrupted by it Public sentiment is outraged. Politicians promise uncompromising punitive action. Things get worse. More people die. This is the familiar narrative of the war on drugs. But it could also be the narrative of the war on migrants. The tragedy in the channel shocked us, but it has not prevented some in government and the media from seeking political capital. And the rhetoric that has been generated reflects exactly the confused and dangerous thinking that has made the war on drugs here and in the US so ineffectual. I think we could probably just nod along to that, right, as a as a pair. Uh, certainly the attempts to deter people from travelling to this country are ineffectual and only make things worse, cause more death, the more suffering, more misery. Well, Well, let's spell it out. Right, we're talking about, and and the government will often use this kind of rhetoric of criminals doing this and people smuggling and profiting from people's misery. 
let's be clear, at least on a moral level and actually under international law, the real criminals are the British government. Yeah, 100%. You know, what they are doing is they are causing the deaths of these people and they are putting laws into place that shift the blame. And that's not to say there aren't people smugglers profiting from misery and that that isn't gross. But if we want to find the biggest profiteers, we need to look closer to home. Take the flamboyantly uh, evil scheme Pretty Patel's hatched to have all asylum seekers shipped to and resettled in Rwanda, of all places. One of the people, and I think I have to say allegedly here, um, set to profit from this is Rishi Sunak's father-in-law. I mean, these these people are the real profiteers. These are the real people smugglers. But they're going on TV and saying that, oh, we can't allow these evil criminal gangs to profit. You created the laws that enabled them to profit, and you profit more than they do. There are even cases of people who are trying to smuggle people in for no financial gain whatsoever, but because it's the moral thing to do. You know, someone got nicked, I think, a couple of years ago for trying to bring someone in in his car who was having a miserable time in France. Um, and I think we would both say, whilst we probably... I, I, I wouldn't do that because I think there'd be too... You know, I'd get caught, right? Yeah. But... Um, but that is a moral thing to yeah, do if you can make it work. And, and you know, this government are introducing laws that are making it very, very difficult. But they're also doing things like, I mean, especially now with Boris Johnson um, facing, um, you know, the struggle of his career, really, trying to stay PM. You know, he, they're now introducing all these disgusting ideas um, to appease the right wing of their own party and, and right wing voters. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, not to step into too dangerous territory, but uh, you're absolutely right to say that the real criminals are the UK government, but um, also, you know, the approach to asylum and immigration from the EU is uh, on extremely shaky legal footing. Uh, and I, I don't I think it's really important to remember whatever your position on all the Brexit stuff that the EU is essentially an anti-immigration organisation. Um, it allows internal immigration, but uh, you know, Fortress Europe is an attempt to keep people from, let's be blunt, non-white countries out of Europe. Uh, so yeah, there is that. You know, you're absolutely correct to say that we're you know you don't want to support the people who are you know people smuggling, and there is definitely you know some horrors going on there, uh, but. Ultimately, they are they are results of the system. Yeah, I think I think the other thing is I see the same people crowing about this who are also the ones who you know the only time they start panicking, some moral panic, is when they see some awful photo like the one of the little kid um, Alan Curdy washing up on a beach with his face in the sand. You know, these are the same people. There's no consistency to their thought, and and a lot of these people claim to be Christians. And you know, I don't I don't often talk about the Bible being clear on things, and there are different parts of the Bible that say different things but there's a very very consistent and constant thread uh, throughout the uh, Hebrew Bible and the New Testament as well of being good to the foreigners who are in your land and Israel's story no matter what you think of it is tied up in being people oppressed in a foreign land and trying to escape that oppression and that's throughout the Torah and that's a core component of their identity um, up to this day. 
And then you look at the New Testament and obviously, you know, we start off with Jesus being a refugee. And some people have tried to argue this. Some people have tried to say, well, he wasn't a refugee. Like, I don't know on what basis they can make that argument other than if they think that the birth narratives aren't literally real, which, you know, fair enough. But these aren't the same people who are, who are saying that, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those people think that they're real. And actually, you know, I would say... My understanding is the historical evidence is that there's very little evidence that he did, in fact, flee. But uh, in terms of how the Gospels position him, it is very clearly in a position of solidarity with refugees and people who are fleeing oppression. So, yeah, we, we are on board that there's this failure going on. And it's fundamentally incompatible with the Christian faith, really. What I want to talk about a little bit is the conclusion that Rome Williams comes to. Uh, so he says, uh, solutions must be worked out by international cooperation in the management of migrant populations at a minimal level of dignity and security across Europe and a humane, secure and effective means of transit and scrutiny. It will need realism about the scale of the challenge in a context where the mortal risks of journeys like the one that ended so appallingly in the channel seem to be reasonable choices because of the alternatives that look worse. Oh, there's a lot of words there. And actually, I don't necessarily disagree with him in terms of all oh, these are short-term solutions. But I think this is where we get to a, a fundamental problem with this sort of thinking, is actually the solution is very clear. Get rid of borders. Get rid of border control. Get rid of border agencies. And yes, the spirit of international cooperation is great. But uh, the fundamental issue at play here is that we attempt to stop people coming into our country, who want to come into our country. And I just think there is something about this failure of imagination that seems so deeply unchristian you know th there's this idea of technocracy uh, he's talking about minimal levels of dignity uh, the management of migrant populations and actually I, I really want to reclaim Christianity as a, a religion of idealism realistic idealism perhaps but you know when the radical Christian option is a bureaucratic approach with minimal levels of dignity like oh yeah maybe that's better than what we've got but actually how is that you you know, Rowan Williams is seen as some ways as the, you know, standard bearer of a radical and, you know, pushing the boat out Christianity in this country. And this is the best we've got. Manage migrant flows better. Yeah, I just think it's, yeah, disappointing. Yeah, and, and actually, I want to pick up this theme of, of Christianity being something of an idealistic faith at its heart. Um, and I mean that in, the, in you know, and, and I assume you do as well, the most positive sense of that word. Yeah, absolutely. By, you know, I'm going to sound like a bit of a conservative now, but like, <laughs> by the world's standards, um, Jesus failed. And so did the early church, you know, yeah. but that's hardly the point. You know, the, the point is to call people to justice and to a standard of justice that aligns with 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 God and God's justice centers grace and mercy and and frankly, the hospitality and love towards the other at its heart. And Jesus actually, again, I would argue using metaphor, but he uses stark language to deal with that. You know, in Matthew 25, he talks about the judgment on those who didn't feed the hungry or, or give the thirsty something to drink or welcome the stranger. Those people are accursed and, and depart into the eternal fire. And so, you know, let's not, you know, I'm not saying everyone's going to hell, like I don't believe that, but, you know, let's not mince our words um, like so many people want to. Anything other than the full liberation of all oppressed peoples and by extension, all people everywhere, um, anything short of that is not up to God's standard and is frankly evil. 
And I think the thing that bugs me, you know, we're talking about being idealistic, but let's, you know, if you're prepared to believe that uh, a virgin birth occurred, that uh, there was a bloke who healed blindness by spitting, that uh, he could change the atomic makeup of water to turn it into wine, uh, and that he died, came back to life, and was literally whisked into heaven by some sort of sunbeam, uh, but you're not prepared to believe that it's possible to imagine a country without borders? Well, what the fuck did any of that mean? Like, are you seriously telling me that it's more plausible that you can change the atomic makeup of water? Like, it just seems like, what do you even believe? Like, if you're prepared to swallow all that stuff, surely the point of Christianity is that we believe some absolutely ridiculous and outlandish things. Um, so why not, like, add some commitments to that that are real, that matter? Okay, Ben, are you questioning God's word? But I do. I mean, like, genuinely, you know, I, I, you know, I would subscribe to the, to the virgin birth. I believe that that Jesus returned from the dead. Scientifically, I can't explain those things. But but we but we have a we have an orthodox faith. That's the point we're trying to make here. Right, like, yeah, yeah. like we're not we're not outlandish. We're not spouting any heresies here. I think, and I think that's my problem almost with apologetics. Is it tries to make these things seem reasonable? They're not reasonable. I don't want to be reasonable. I don't like being reasonable in in this world is to be evil. Like, I'm no, no interest in being reasonable by by the society we live in. But I do believe these things. I have an orthodox faith, uh, and therefore I'm prepared to also throw my lot in uh, with some other outlandish claims that are actually far less outlandish, really, historically and politically and imaginatively, but re- require you be, to be able to see beyond what is understood as reasonable in the here and now. And a Christianity that doesn't open those imaginative possibilities for you just seems a bit of a waste of time if i'm being honest it the point of believing that stuff is not just that you've got to intellectually agree with those things so that you can get a badge saying i am a theologically orthodox christian but also that those open up possibilities for what a world could look like and that we are free to imagine things well beyond the understanding of what exists now well yeah and actually i want to kind of subvert this a little bit i want to i don't want to flip flip the tables (laughs) Um, people accuse us and our way of thinking of being unworkable of being utopian capitalism is utopian it doesn't work you know we've seen that over the last two three hundred years it is killing people by the billions really um millions and millions of people die every year are displaced every year don't have access to food to water all of these things to medicine because of ridiculous ideas about how the market should function about who owns the land about all of this nonsense this is magical thinking you know, it's 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 utopian, but it's it's dystopian. Frankly, it's only utopian for for those it benefits, and and those people are um, unfortunately not the majority. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the, the conclusion: yes, Rowan Williams, the war on people smuggling is very bad, but come up with better solutions. And actually, if this is radical Christianity, then um, I want to be part of radicaler Christianity. I guess fundamentally Rowan Williams in his conclusions there he might seem certainly by the standards of uh, a lot of ex-archbishops and the current bishops and former bishops he might seem an extremely out there and provocative thinker but fundamentally still an establishment thinker when it comes to stuff like this and we can do better yeah I think um Rowan Williams definitely has a radical streak in him 
And I would be interested to know whether he's actually kind of tempering his own thinking on this for a general audience. Ultimately, you can't know that and therefore we have to take him at his word. But I suspect it may be a little bit more radical than that. However, you know, I have recently finished reading Faith in the Public Square, and that has sort of made me question my understanding of Rowan Williams a little bit a little bit more, because I think perhaps he was more radical in his early days. And actually being Archbishop, yes, it was difficult for him. Yes, he was more radical than people were used to. But I think it might have de-radicalized him a little bit, like in a, in a bad way, not in a, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's, you know, in some ways that's inevitable, right? Like um, Sarah and I have often joked that she's like like you, she's training to be a vicar. And I, you know, I've said, if you're ever going to become a bishop, it'll be as a single person. <laughs> and although it's like, you know, a joke, and it's partially because, frankly, if they uh, do a background check on her to be a bishop and whatever I've done in my life doesn't immediately disqualify her from that, I will consider that a personal failing. But um, <laughs> it does, you know, actually, I mean, if you're a bishop, you go live in a palace. <laughs> like Not necessarily. Necessarily, but but yeah. like most of the time, you live in a palace. You're wealthy by any reasonable estimation, oh, yeah. and the people you're spending time with, the stuff that's happening to you, it, it's going to de-radicalize you times that by a thousand for being the Archbishop of Canterbury. And yeah, you know the the history of his his reign as Archbishop. His big aim was to keep the church together, particularly on the issue of sexuality. Uh, and fundamentally, he compromised again and again. You know, I don't want to be too harsh on Rowan Williams. He is often a really interesting theologian, as you say. He's got a radical streak to him and I don't want to dismiss him entirely but his career really has been defined by compromising yeah. in a way that I, I am unconvinced by. Yeah well I think one of the biggest problems for Rowan Williams was he was a bit of a people pleaser and ultimately mm. you know you, you try and please all the people and you end up pleasing no one and you know you've only got to look at the whole situation with Jeffrey John I think he handled that very very poorly. Yeah, and that was that was the diocese that I was in at the time, and it was hugely controversial. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jeffrey John was going to be Bishop of Reading. Uh, he was an openly gay man in a civil partnership, I believe, and it was hugely controversial. I don't think he was in a civil partnership. I think it was just literally that he was a celibate gay man. I think he might be now in a civil partnership, but either way, it, you know, it was a huge controversy. He would have been the first openly gay bishop. Sure as hell he will not be the first gay bishop. There's plenty of those knocking about, but the first openly gay one, because the rest of them are cowards. Yeah, um, oh, well. <laughs> well, he, well, he had integrity. He had integrity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Officially speaking, Geoffrey John withdrew his application, uh, but it was widely understood that Rowan Williams told him to, this is, we're not doing this. Apparently... Uh, it was that Rowan Williams actually said that he had withdrawn his application before he was notified himself that he had withdrawn his application. And I think that's exactly it. You can have these radical streaks and these radical ideas and you can sit and write books with all these radical possibilities. But it, when the shit hits the fan, you've got to stand up for what you believe in. And I think, I don't think Rowan Williams is a total failure on that, but there are very notable opportunities he had to be better that he didn't take. Yeah. And I get that because I'm a bit of a people pleaser as well, and I'm trying less to be so, but I get that that's really hard. And I think he's a good man. I just think, you know, I'd want to see more, you know? Yeah. By the way, do you know off the top of your head how much the Archbishop of Canterbury earns? Considering he also gets a, a well, an apartment in a palace, but effectively a palace. Oh, 60K a year. Try again. Oh, wow. More? Mm-hmm. 100k? Not 100k. No. He gets 85,070 pounds a year. 
And like, yeah, it's a hard job, but yeah, but no, no one needs to make eighty five thousand. Nobody needs um, to make eighty five thousand, and you're a clergyman. Uh, yeah, every time I hear the Church of England is struggling financially, or a diocese is struggling financially, I I just have no time for it. Like, decisions are being made on priorities, uh, and those priorities are bad. You know, like I always think, how many paintings? <laughs> How much money in the paintings alone does the Church of England have? And I'm a big believer in the arts. You know, I think it's good for the church to be supporting artistic endeavour, but expensive paintings can be sold and spent on a lot more valuable things. Even if that is, you know, let's say, okay, well, you don't want to take away from the arts, so sell the paintings and invest it in a project around access to the arts for young people. You know, like, <laughs> like you could fund a fair amount of stuff just by selling off the Church of England's paintings. Yeah, and if you, if you still want that paint, you know, if that adds some kind of aesthetic thing like get another one done get a copy done you know or or get you know get a print of it and keep that like you don't need to have the original do you know what i mean yeah yeah and, and you know in terms of land ownership yeah um, one of the biggest in the and country in ter- yeah yeah and and then yeah you look at you know is it a life-changing amount of money that you could save on the Archbishop's going to be no but as a principal could he survive on forty thousand? i bet he could if he's got his housing provided for him i'd bet and the fact he you know still gets money for speaking and writing engagements i reckon he could survive on 40k You've got, you know, a, a whole other person. You can you can employ a, a, a detached youth worker at well above um, living. You can wage employ two. To go and do something valuable. You know, you can employ yeah, two. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Um, do you know how much a diocesan bishop earns? Uh, Fifty-five. No, no, it's it's considerably less, but it's still a decent wage. Right. It's uh, forty-six thousand one hundred and eighty. Yeah, and I don't know, like. I, I mean, I come in the position of I get aggravated when I see um, priests, bish- uh, not, not even bishops, the vicars, priests. You know, you see them occasionally pop up and say, uh, the amount of church and the money we get, it's it's not enough to live off. And I would say, actually, in terms of, and I know you're living with it right now, Adam, the money that they give to trainees is appalling. Um, trainees should be getting paid a minimum, uh, not minimum wage, well, though they aren't even getting paid that, but they should be getting paid a living wage. But actually, vicars, you know, an average incumbent is what twenty seven and a half thousand pounds a year plus housing. I don't think it's quite that, but yeah, that's the benchmark. I think like it's a, a bit less, but yeah, I think what I would say, I mean, for me personally, like I, I feel like I've been very well supported by my diocese. It's not a huge amount of money. Things are a struggle, but actually, I get more than most because they're trying to support me because of my neurodiversity and stuff, and I do appreciate that. But I. I definitely think there are a lot of questions to answer about um, just our, our approach to money. You know, the amount of priests where I've, you know, I've had some say some involvement in the, the recruitment process um, quite a number of times now, and a number of priests who come in and complain, and not just about you know money. You do hear a lot of people in in the priesthood complain about money, but you hear them complaining about the house as well. And I'm like stood there thinking. First of all, that's really disrespectful because you're in, standing in the same room as the people who have just decorated this house for you. Yeah. Like well, one of them, like the youth group decorated the house and yeah. they're going, oh, well, it's not as big as our last place. Like this was a fucking nice house. It was a detached, massive garden, lovely, lovely house. And I just think that's not just disrespectful, but it's it's detached from reality. You know, yeah. like like I, I was like, but I could never, I could never imagine living in a house like this. You know, and I think for me, you know, to, to personalise it, I, you know, I always think every time someone complains, I think you earn more money, even leaving aside the housing, just in pure take-home cash, you earn more money 
than I have ever earned. Uh, Double. Even now, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I've earned slightly more than you do, but even now, you know, I'm looking after some of the most vulnerable children in society, which is, uh, with all due respect, an infinitely more important job than being a vicar. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> but like, like, hey, even, like even if I you feel don't attacked. think it's infinitely more, <laughs> but like, okay, like I'm obviously taking a bit spiritual, like, like being a religious leader, it has value, but like, it, you know, no one would deny, you know, we're talking about fucking key workers during the COVID yeah, pandemic yeah. and. You know, uh, clap on the doorstep, but don't pay them the money they need to live stuff. Exactly. But, you know, yeah, like yeah. You, you are earning really, really, really good money by any reasonable measure. Well, yeah, yeah, and and you know, are there are there some priests in situations where where actually that might not be enough? You know, are there priests who have like a lot of kids to feed or something? Like, yeah, and and like fundamentally, what we're saying as communists slash anarchists slash socialists, whatever we are, you know, is we're saying, mm. well, fine, there are going to be some people who do need to earn more than what we would consider a good wage because that's what they need. But we need to provide for people's needs, not for what we think they deserve for doing a particular job. But also, even if you got ten kids. You're getting a lot more than you never get off universal credit, like yeah. you know, like well, there are people living. Now. Like it's capped well, yeah. as well. Like, but even, but yeah, like even even when it was slightly more generous, yeah. there are people living on a lot less money. of people that are paid far too much money. <laughs> Looks like Boris Johnson's going to lose his job. Yay! Um, mm. It's a like hollow it's, victory, it's, uh, yeah. but it's a victory nonetheless. Well, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear, we'll all be happy to see him go and we should take that opportunity, but, you know, he's probably going to be replaced by uh, some awful, more ideological person who's particularly into pork markets or um, <laughs> you know, whatever that may be, um, or or um, just is in, in the case. So Rishi Sunak's the one who really scares me, and it's for the same reason that I don't think you can write him off, even though his approval ratings dropped off a cliff. Because Rishi Sunak is really good at selling himself, but he's also ideological. Boris Johnson doesn't really have an ideology. You know, like he he's his ideology is Boris Johnson. And in some respects, that makes him dangerous because he's more ready to ally with the far right or at least the hard right. Rishi Sunak, I think, will be more competent than Boris Johnson and in a similar way, very good at making himself look good, making himself palatable to the public. But the thing is, he is ideological as well. And that's how he's dangerous, because whilst he might not ally quite so much with the far right, which, you know, fantastic what he will do is bring us back to this very very neoliberal uh way of running an economy which is going to be disastrous if, as if things aren't bad enough already is going to be disastrous for those who need support now and i just think don't write sunak off because he's well liked in the party and that means more than the opinion of the general public will ever mean the far right have a real strong position in the la- in the in, in the Labour Party. I mean, there too, I guess. Yes, also true. <laughs> um, but they they have a very strong position in the in the Tory Party, especially since Boris Johnson's been in power. And it's interesting that you use the phrase "red meat" because that is, of course, 
the name of one of the operations that they did before in one of his last scandals, and it worked. Operation Save Big Dog. Yeah, that's one of the other ones they did at the same time, I think. Oh, okay. Operation Save Big Dog, which just sounds like a porn name, doesn't it? But not a porn you'd want to watch. Oh, you're not not into Boris Johnson? Bit of bit of uh, bit of whiff off on the on the kitchen oh. table. Oh, I feel <laughs> sick to my stomach. <laughs> Disgusting. Gonna have to put an explicit warning on this podcast. We never do. Like I feel like we probably should. Yeah, we never do. Um, don't let your children listen to it because um, we're we're very stupid. If nothing else, they don't be influenced by us. Like <laughs> Ben's filthy, I think is what. <laughs> <laughs> Something I wanted to talk very briefly about, and maybe we'll come back to this in some depth. Is um, there is this idea in in the Bible? Don't know if you've heard of it. It's an interesting book about praying for your leaders, and I, I want to try and unpack briefly just a little bit about what that might look like in a context where you know we we both we would be quite happy we don't think it's got a long-term political advantage but throwing Joris Bonson Boris Johnson out would uh, at least be uh, enjoyable to watch regardless of its long-term political effects so um, what what does it look like in this context to be people who, who are praying for our leaders I think that liberation theology can help us here critical pedagogy as well so like the uh, liberation of the poor also means the liberation of the rich, um, of the oppressors, because by oppressing people, you are yourself living in a condition of essentially oppression. Um, it's just that you can't see that. And of course, it's not as bad as you know those who you're oppressing, but it is still a, a deeply messed up system that doesn't align with God's justice. And so I think if we're praying for our leaders, then what we're praying for, as much for their own liberation as those they're oppressing, is for them to fall, is for them to not be the leaders anymore, at the very least. Yeah, and I wonder if there's something as well about, to use a very Christian term, we talk about, you know, experiencing the fruit of repentance, i.e. when when we recognise we've done something wrong and, and ask for forgiveness and look to make up and make reparations for what we have done, we experience God more fully, we experience a better life as a result of that. You know, actually that's a really interesting way of thinking about we want people in charge of our country, the politicians, to experience the fruit of repentance. And sometimes <laughs> you've got to go through the dark work of repentance and reparation before you can experience that fruit. And that probably involves not being in charge anymore and all this sort of stuff. And whether, you know, we believe in a God who works miracles, you know, we were talking about that earlier, but uh, whether bringing about a change in Boris Johnson is a miracle too far is is an open question. But yeah, I think the reason I wanted to, t- to kind of just touch on that briefly is, is because it is something you see people talk about, you know, well, we need to be praying for leaders. And I'm sure you've, you've had, you know, we pray for leaders and, you know, pray for decision making and all this sort of wisdom for our leaders. My favourite bit um, slash least favourite bit in, um, I think, Evensong is where the priest says, God save the Queen. And I want, like, I internally vomit every time. Oh no, I'm to- yeah. God save the queen. God save the queen from her wealth, from her sin, from the horror of exactly, her yeah, 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 existence. exactly. Like, I, I, I agree. <laughs> she, the queen, the queen should be saved yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first step of that is no longer being the queen. Uh, uh, but yeah, like you see people, you know, people will say, oh, we pray for leaders and they will talk about praying for, you know, they have to make good decisions, wisdom, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and I get it comes from a good place. Um, and even people who, 
who maybe would call themselves left wing will do that. But there's a legitimization that happens there, even amongst people who, who would say, oh, they oppose this government or whatever, that it's using Christianity as kind of a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a milk toast, you know, flavorless, mild form of Christianity that just kind of, although it claims to oppose some of the stuff, is allowing it to continue and legitimizing it. Uh, and we want a nice spicy Christianity. And yeah, you can follow that injunction to, to pray for your leaders uh, without letting them off the hook, without asking them to, to be better. And you can still be praying for the good of the leadership of this country and celebrating Boris Johnson getting hauled out on his ass. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, what this is, um, this way of thinking is, is the continuation of Christendom, isn't it? You know, it's, it's Christianity yeah. used as an ideological, um, tool, um, and, and something that's, you know, when we talk about Christian culture and thousands of years of, of Christian culture, Jesus isn't interested in Christian culture. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's not interested in defending this idea of Christianity, this idea of what it means to either follow Jesus or to be a part of a culture that has traditionally followed Jesus. He's not about that. You know, he's he's about solidarity with with the poor and oppressed, about the liberation um, of all of us from the material conditions that we find ourselves in. Absolutely. So God save the Queen. The fascist regime. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to us wittering on. As I said at the start, we are hoping to be a bit more regular. <laughs> we will be drinking prune juice. Speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> you can find us in all your usual podcasty feed places. Uh, if you think people might be interested, don't be afraid to share us with them. Uh, we don't do any sort of advertising or really put any effort in, and I refuse to talk to anyone I know in real life about this. So uh, you telling people about it is the only way we're ever going to get anywhere. Um, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bread and rosaries find us on Twitter at bread underscore rosaries uh, and you can email us at bread and rosaries at gmail.com as we said at the start we really love hearing from people uh, anything you want to say to us suggestions of what we could talk about who we could have on uh, questions uh, critiques anything you'd like us to, to do better on uh, we're open to all of it so please do get in touch Adam where in the world can people find you uh, you can find me on various platforms these days I'm mostly on TikTok because I think that I'm young uh, at commie x-i-a-n thank you very much for listening we will see you all next time here is if I remember to done it some sex pistols to play you out see you later see ya take the queen